When a customer walks into your shop with a do not duplicate key, do you automatically copy it? What about when they bring in a safe? When you're on a job, do you always follow the manufacturer's rules or do you just make it work? And are your quotes and pricing always accurate or do you just make it up as you go? Today on the podcast by, by Locksmiths for Locksmiths, we're going to get into the nitty gritty about the ethics of locksmithing. I'm Jeff Moss, along with Tyler J. Thomas and handsome Tim Coleman. This is The Three Tumblers. Any half-knowledgeable locksmith should be able to look at a neuter bow key, determine the actual keyway, and make a copy for their customer. But are there times that locksmiths should do that? What if it's an obscure keyway that's not restricted but used by a specific location in your area? And also, what kind of proof do you ask for when someone brings a safe or locking container into your shop? So, generally speaking, you know, we say there's no key police. If it's an unrestricted key stamp, do not duplicate, we make it. If it was a restricted keyway, we probably wouldn't have the blank. Um, if it's something that's patented that we do stock, you know, chances are they're not on the list if it's just some random person coming in. So that's really not an issue. Sometimes we'll say, hey, if you talk to the you talk to your apartment owner and they might give you a letter to make the key one time, you know, if it's a Peaks or a Primus or something that we that's on our system that, that we do. Um, other than that, you know, there's no following the lowest standards is that you tell the person that it's not restricted and it really has no meaning. There's no rules in Ohio. I mean, they're thinking in some states there might be. Um, obviously, if it was stamped property state of Ohio, do not duplicate, probably wouldn't make it. If it you know, says U.S. government, do not duplicate, probably wouldn't make it. You know, um, if it's a post office key, we don't have the blank. If it's, you know, uh, you know, there are people that want their keys put on do not duplicate blanks so they could tell them apart. You know, they know that it'll stop the kid at Home Depot. Maybe and here's something I just thought of. Maybe that they know that if we copy it, it'll work. So if they put it on a do not duplicate blank, somebody's going to have to come to us. I, it's just a it, it really isn't it, it will it will stop the hardware store because they won't really be able to identify it because that's what they go on is, you know, the head of the key, most likely. Uh, I should, you know, I know from when I worked at one, you know, you look at the head of the key and if you can't figure it out, you're like, okay, what am I doing here? You know, master key systems, again, they're, if it's unrestricted, you know, I don't think that it's on us to make extra rules. You know, Tyler talks about following the factory rules and I agree, but if it's a, a Schlage system, you know, I don't know if there's a registry number on an unrestricted, you know, if they wouldn't require authorization, then why would we? If they do require it, then yeah, we require it. You know, we can't not follow the rules that Kaba Peaks puts out for their dealers because then we're breaking the, the terms of what we agreed to. So Tyler, I mean, you deal with pretty much all restricted stuff and I don't think you really have people coming in wanting keys made, but I know that is sort of how you met Breck, if I recall correctly. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, we're, we're, we're bound by contracts and uh, I follow the Aloha credence where if it's not patented or restricted by 
abnormal means it's it's safe to do the one exception is medico though still sky air if it's not ours i won't touch it i don't know if i can i don't know if since it's not in patent anymore if the contracts don't matter but i don't want to chance it because i don't want to run afoul of the factory um but i i won't touch anything meta medico that comes in that we did not set up even if it's sky or air or even you know g3 now with biaxial which is distributor and there is a paper record for it you know with the card but i i still won't touch it everything else i will touch even but to to that point remember when i asked you well what if somebody brought in something that was one of your keyways couldn't you just rekey it and put it on your keys yes yeah And, and that would be fine because i'm not usurping any other locksmith out there um unless it's an active patent but uh biaxial original and now i guess m3 are out of patent so yeah i'd be fine with that but as far as duplicating what's already existing no i'm not touching that save saving my ass agreed for sure because you know you don't want to open yourself up to that uh, Jeff, but you you mentioned a good point earlier about at bringing it to hardware stores. Um, I've caught people, especially at the old shop I used to work at, they will cover that do not duplicate with painter's tape mm-hmm. and, and mm. just say, oh, yeah, it's that just so I know which key it is. <laughs> you're like, you're kind of like, oh, I know what you're doing. Yeah. I, I have to say that in our shop, if we get a uh, like a custom coined key from another locksmith shop, but it's an SC1 or SC4 key, we will, you know, and it's custom coined with their shop name and do not duplicate on there and everything. If it's SC1, SC4, KW1, whatever, we will put it on one of our custom uh, D&D blanks. We'll copy it to it. And I mean, we sell those for more, but, you know, still, it's just kind of that little kind of that little middle finger i guess to that other locksmith if they ever go back there or see it you know hey yeah we copied your key hey is that right i don't know i mean it's an open unpatented keyway right it's not controlled many years ago we you know i think when the shop was smaller they stamped every key so every key had our shop name on it you know m1 y11 whatever they were standard blanks and people bring those in and you know, it just was a very cheap form of advertising, but it, I don't know that we've ever had neuter bow keys or, you know, keys with our logo on them. Um, other locksmiths have, and again, they're not anything special. Um, there was one, somebody brought in, I think I told this story, it was a car key and it was like a GM B47. Well, the guy scratched off all the markings, put his phone number and stuff on it, told the guy that, it, you know, nobody else could make that key. And it was like, 50 bucks and i'm like uh this key is 285 plus tax that guy was full of shit and i can't believe it. like he like engraved his name on the key you know joe's locksmithing with the phone number and you know covered up where it's at b47 or the key like really you know so whatever it, it, there is i'm just like well that's somebody i would never call well speaking you know, of ethics that's not very ethical no it's not and that was just like, wow, I don't know this guy, but I uh, wouldn't think very highly of it. So, and Tim, you know, you talk, you have mentioned about 
some stuff that you guys do as far as documentation and authorization. So what what is your purview? Well, in our shop is is the policy like if somebody brings in I I think what you're referring to is kind of our policy on safes and locking containers uh, yeah. because I make a difference between the two. Century and Amazon are metal locking containers. They're not safes. Uh, and basically what we do is we ask the customer before we even get in there, we say, okay, you know, is there anything in there? And they tell us, yes. Okay. Is there anything in there that we can use to identify you? Or can you tell us specifically what is in there? Because if somebody brings in, say, a little Amazon lockbox or whatever, and they say, hey, the batteries are dead on it, can't get in there, or lost the key, or changed the code with the door shut, and now it doesn't work, uh, whatever, then we want to ensure that we identify that person, and that person is rightfully getting into their stuff. Um, you know, we're not being nosy, we don't go through stuff, but if somebody says, hey, you know, yes, there's a bunch of stuff in there. I don't know what it is. I don't know what the combination is and I don't have a key for it. That's going to give us kind of suspicion because we don't want to inadvertently assist somebody in a crime. And if somebody brings in like a little Amazon lockbox and they say, yeah, whatever the example was I give, you know, I've already given and we open it and it's, actually their grandmother's box and it has all of her pain medication in there. And here's this 20 year old person, uh, you know, paying us 25, 30 bucks, whatever to open the thing up, then we've just helped them steal grandma's medication. So if we open it up and we see that names don't match, they can't tell us what's in there. Generally we screen those out and, and we don't really have a lot of issues with that but we take extra precautions mm -hmm. um if it's empty completely empty then sure we'll open up all day long now another thing that we do is we specifically ask if there are any firearms in those containers or safes and if there is a firearm in there we get a photocopy of the customer's you know driver's license or id card and we document the serial numbers of you know, like make, model, and serial number of the firearm that's in there when we open it. That way we have it on record because if three, four, five weeks from then, a detective shows up and says, hey, did you guys happen to open, you know, a little safe for somebody and it had a gun in it, we can go through our records and say, yes, this is what we have. We're covering our asses. And I think that you know, as far as the ethics point of view is concerned, you, as a locksmith, you really don't want to put yourself out there as a potential accessory to a crime. And I agree to a point, you know, we will not sell code keys unless you bring the safe in or we go out to you. We don't give combinations out over the phone. We don't do any of that. But, it, you know, the view is that it's not our business what's in there. And, it's opened by the customer, as Tyler has said, you know, you you throw the bolt, but the customer throws the door. You know, I've seen things in safes that I have 
probably not been meant to see or smelled them in as as the case may be most of the time they're empty you know some old lady brings something in and it's you know they lost the key and it's it just is it's either empty or it's got papers or whatever you know everything we do is audio and video recorded i've had people that are worried that we're going to steal their stuff you know our the one thing that we do is that we if you bring it in and you want a key made for it we open it, it, it quickly if is you take your stuff with you and then we work on the container at our leisure. So we're not and, responsible for stuff that's left because there's nothing left. It's empty. Um, and Jeff, you, you bring up just, just to interrupt you real quick. Um, you know, as far as not seeing and, and not smelling things, um, I am in a very unique position between the three of us and probably most of the locksmiths out there. I'm still a sworn police officer. So I have to balance what I do as this job and a sworn police officer, because there are certain codes of conduct that I have to follow when I'm off duty, which is most of the time now, because I'm just reserved. So, you know, if somebody comes in and they're completely honest and they say, Hey, I've got, you know, a pound of pot in the safe and I need to get it open because I have a customer buying it from me tonight, which I'd, doubt any customer is going to be that honest but you know what i'm saying ethically i have to say i can't do this i can turn and look at my boss and say boss you can do that if you want to but i can't be a part of it i i need to go out back i need to go clean my truck you know i need to go whatever so yeah i'm in a very unique position when it comes to stuff like that Personally, I don't give a shit if somebody's got a couple dime bags in that lockbox. I don't care. You know, is is you? I'm not in uniform as a cop, but at the same time, I don't want to have my fingerprints on that safe, literally and figuratively. I don't want to have my fingerprints on that safe and it turn up in an investigation, and then I have to explain myself a month or three or six from now. Yeah, that, I I see your point there, you know, as far as like opening houses and stuff like that, or, you know, we talked about lockouts last time, you know, do you require, how do you handle that? Well, for lockouts, you know, like a residential lockout, I, when I get there or, or any of my coworkers get there, we say, hey, you know, before we even get there, we say, you know, does your ID match the address on your your driver's license or ID, does it match the address of the house that we're unlocking? And we confirm that. If it doesn't, say they just bought the house, you know, a week or two ago and they locked themselves out accidentally, then we require, you know, okay, show us the closing documents, show us a utility bill, you know, show us something with your name, this address on it, and your government issued photo id so we can line everything up yeah absolutely all right so when we come back why should you follow manufacturer's rules for your own good believe it or not manufacturers actually put a lot of time and effort into their hardware specifically how lock cylinders and keys are supposed to work we all pretty much have to listen to Max. There's no choice there. But what about other rules? When was the last time you balanced a pin stack in a Schlage or even a quick set cylinder? 
Have you ever used bottom pins in the top and not even bothered to turn them around? Or have you ever just made shit up work because it wouldn't play by the rules? So here's my deal. And I was reading this last night and I was talking to Jeff and Tim and it really got me hot and bothered, but not in a good way, is that I always follow manufacturers rules, uh, restricted or not. Schlage, Corbin Russell, quick said, if we ever touch it, I stick by the rules. And yeah, that makes me a stickler. And I got into a debate about this on that Locksmith VIP journal or Locksmith Journal VIP. And somebody said, oh, well, do you not go one mile above the speed limit and blah, blah, blah? Well, here's the thing. If I violate a law, there's a set penalty. I either got to pay a fine, jail time, something like that. Fine. I'm fine with that. But if I violate a manufacturer's rule and somebody gets hurt, a sexual assault occurs, God forbid, a murder, and it's due to my negligence of the rules that I knew existed, that's way worse than paying a $150 speeding ticket. So my theory, my philosophy in life is that the rules are there for a reason. You follow them. And if you do not follow them, either for convenience, lack of pins, because you know you can't make that small format pin stack reach 23 because it's five o'clock on a Friday. It's the last job of the day. And you're out of number nine top pin, something like that. That's still no excuse. And I, I will fight that to my grave. And that just makes me weird. But at the end of the day, like I said, if something happens to my customers due to my negligence, it, it'd be the worst feeling in the world. Never mind that, you know, potentially a lawsuit could occur and put the business under, sue me, whatever, money, money, whatever. I can make money all day. But the fact that somebody would get hurt, possibly dead due to that, that really keeps me going as far as following the rules. Uh, Jeff, what are your opinions on following the rules? I mean, I, I agree that specs and standards exist for a reason, but sometimes you have to deviate from them to make things work. If I could, if I had the luxury of telling every customer, no, you got to get a whole new master key system every time we, we work on something, we'd have a lot less work. You know, I'm not in charge. I don't have the luxury. There are some things where I just say, no, we cannot make this work, period. And I don't even bother. Are there times that I use a number you use because these are the keys they want to work and it's a one and a two. And yes, I will put an upside down pin in to make it work smoother or to, to create that shear line. You know, I didn't know about it before. I'm not proud, but you know, it's, it is, I, I, it's hard to defend it, but it's just, it's, it is something that gets done. Try not to do it, but can't always get around it. Yeah. Well, I, I can understand too, because I, we've gotten, we've gotten straight from the factory of, well, I won't name the manufacturer, but very popular one and the cylinders were all horribly out of spec the only way to make it work was to take that reamer and chamfer the fifth and sixth chamber yeah wasn't proud of it but we sent a letter to the manufacturer we sent a letter to the customer and said look we measured all of the cylinders they were out of spec by x you know whatever thousandths of an inch and said the only way to make this work was to do it this way but at least we gave them notification Mm -hmm. So it was on the manufacturer to either correct the mistake by issuing new plugs, new cylinders, whatever, or ignore it. But that's not on us. 
Right. And I've had people bring in brand new cores from a high price manufacturer that won't even turn empty. It's like, I'm not going to waste my time with this. You need to send them back and get, get proper product. But if well, I, that, that, that's what we told them too. We said, Hey, look, we buy OEM pins. We buy them direct from you. Your own pins are not working in your own cylinders and your own plugs. This is what we had to do to make it work. It's on you, not us. And if it were if it were up to me, I would not re, I would not master key anything that says any of that stuff. But those come in all day, and we, you know we charge more than the lock is worth to to key it. Am I happy with that? No. But do uh, I need to bleep those? names no it's an opinion it's it's an opinion no you it no you feel you feel dirty after touching some of those don't you jeff yeah you're not proud about being a locksmith that particular moment tim you you clean up messes on the regular eh i do um what say you all right so who the fuck balances at pin stack i mean really sometimes Sometimes Bullshit. when the key won't go in smoothly because the pins are too long, yes, you do have to change that. Okay, okay I, I'll agree. I'll agree with that a little bit because we do have a customer that's less than a mile down the street from our shop and is an apartment complex, and they're on Quickset and they are a mastered Quickset system, and we do their master keying for them. We hate it. We have tried to tell them on multiple occasions to switch to something else that is more easily mastered keyed. But I mean, it is kind of bullshit with some of those. And I, you know, Jeff, you're saying that, you know, you don't own the company you work for. And so you have to do those things. Yes. I have to do those things too. And cleaning up the mess um, that we come into I guess is is part of locksmithing. I mean, right? We sometimes we do have to just buckle down and make it work for the customer. We're not happy about it. Like Tyler was saying, we we feel like shit after we get done with it. But it works. The key goes in and out smoothly and it turns beautifully and it does exactly what the customer wants to, but you know, there's sometimes that I think ethically as a locksmith, you just have to say, you know, no, we can't do this. Yeah. And it's up to shop owners and, and individual locksmiths. If they, if they're independent and work for themselves, um, you know, another thing that, that I wanted to touch on with, you know, here in Tyler's block is that some locksmiths just kind of say, fuck it. And they'll only put in, a few pins. Now I came across one of those uh, a few months ago and um, it, it was just a simple reiki. I'm sitting in the back of the truck, taking cylinders apart, whatnot, and I pull one apart and there's no pin in the first chamber. And I'm like, that half-ass locksmith ran out of pins. This was probably Friday afternoon when he did this. Didn't want to do any more. And so I go and I load everything up, all that, put it back together, put the key in, damn thing won't turn. And I sit there and I fuck with it for like 30 minutes and come to find out the top chamber, like in the, the cylinder housing is screwed up so that it won't interact with the bottom pin. And I'm like, what the hell? 
and I wound up leaving out the first chamber, just removing everything that I'd put in there. And I said, that's why that locksmith did it. He wasn't being a half-ass. He was making it work for the customer. There were four pins left in the cylinder and it worked, but it wouldn't be in half-assed. Now, if you go to another situation where you pull a, a cylinder apart and it's on a master key system and they've only got three pins, you know, three chambers pinned, that's bullshit. Don't do that. And that's all I've got to say. Have you, I, 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 got, I learned this or was taught this from a very early age, and at least as it relates to this career, when you run into things like that and you make the customer aware and they don't act on it, you at least notate that on the invoice where you say, Hey, this is what I found. This is what I recommended customer declined. Do y'all do something like that? Yeah. Yeah, we do. Cause all our, all of our records are electronic. We, we don't have any paper at all. So it's very easy for us to go in on our phones on the app and make those customer notes, whether it goes on the invoice or just internal notes. Yes, we do do that. Yeah, well, I think that's good as far as covering your ass. Hefe, do you have anything else? My name is Jeff. I just... <laughs> My name is Jeff. Tim, any final points before we move on? Don't be a lazy ass. Do it, and if it won't work, then at least put the effort in saying this to work. Covering your ass. Up next, when should you be accurate in pricing? When should you be flexible? Why it matters. Any established locksmith should be receiving requests from potential customers to provide estimates and quotes at least a few times a week. These could be as simple as how much do you charge to copy my Schlate key to I'm interested in having you put in a key fob system at my business. A good ethic of every locksmith should be established pricing. But as we all know, this can vary widely based on existing conditions and customer goals. The question is, when do you bend your pricing rules and why? You know, I've found doing this job that when I go out to quote, you know, to, to write a quote for somebody and I look at stuff, the more I do this job, the more I say, you know, that's a shitty door. That door is going to be a pain in the ass. This is going to be easy. And some sometimes I'm right. Sometimes I'm not. But you have to a lot for incidentals is what I'm finding, because you can't just quote out and say, oh, yes, that's an adjust door closer. That's a swap out lever. That's a swap out of the strike plate. You can't do that. You have to build some wiggle room in there. But at the same time, you don't want to scam your customers, right? I mean, you don't want to quote low and then get there and say, you know, oh, well, this is more than what I, I thought it would be. So here's a higher price. So I guess my point, Tyler, is account for the pains in the ass of the job yeah and set the customer's expectations higher to a higher rate than what you think it might come out to is that ethical or more ethical than setting a base price for all your itemized labor and then surprising them 
at the end? It's, I think it's very ethical because we're a little over 200 subcontractors now in about nine states. And I don't even bother asking them for quotes on the job. I bid like four times more than what I think they're actually going to charge me. And I tell the customer, look, this is an extremely worst case scenario, but it's going to help you budget. It's going to help you set your PO amount. And this is why we're doing it. And it almost always comes under. So they're fine with that. They're happy when it's, they're never, there's never going to be a problem where they're upset that it came under. They're upset when it goes over. So overestimating, very ethical. What about, um, like, do you figure in your quote process return trips? Like when you, you know, okay, for access control systems, automatically out the door, when somebody wants access control on a building, you should know in your brain that you're going to go back out there at least three times after the initial install and setup, right? So do you figure that into your pricing or, you know, something like that? Well, we don't do access control, so no, I don't. But uh, what we call the cleanup phase of any rekey, massive rekey or, or new deployment, yeah, you have to you have to factor that in. You add extra service calls, uh, extra labor, but you just all bundle it together. Like I said, nobody's ever going to be upset that the actual final bill came under what you told them. They're going to be upset if things are higher than what they anticipated. So I always account for worst case scenario and it always comes under and they're always thrilled with it. So I think it's way more ethical to plan for worst case scenario. And if it doesn't happen, it almost never does. They're happy. You're happy. You're still getting paid. Yeah. I mean, prices already changed. Material costs go up. Um, you know, there's shortages. You got to buy something, you know, you can't get it. So you got to buy something at the last minute. You know, price. I mean, it, it's tough. You know, prices rarely go down, but they can certainly go up. And I've heard of some distributors in the electrical field, like they're, if you get a quote on wire, it's only good for 24 hours that, you know, it's that volatile, you know, you can put notes on your quotes and say, it's only good for 30 days, you know, price goes up otherwise, you know, yeah, I mean, it goes up, uh, you know, if you call us back in six months, of course, it's going to be more, you know, that's like, you would think that that goes without saying, of course, it's going to be more, you know, people, people, you know, they change their mind, they hem and haw on it for a year, <laughs> you know, what do you, ex you know, do you expect that it's going to be the same price? Like, look at what everything costs now. Um, you know, that's just like crazy to, you know, think that the price is going to be the same a year later. And we've had jobs like that, you know, where they, you lose touch with the customer and then they decide they want to do it. Well, guess what? It's not that price end. But you make right. an excellent point. You make an excellent point there. And this is for all new business owners, locksmith business owners, always put an addendum at the bottom of your quote that this quote is only valid for 30 days, 60 days, whatever it may be. Lock them in. And if they want to come back and revisit it, requote accordingly to price adjustments. Yep. Because our shop, you know, we do our quotes are good for 30 days. I, I think. I think 30 days, um, you know, it, because it seems like in the last year and a half that I've been doing this shit, uh, we get a notification from our distributors that prices are going up like at least once a month. 
And so we we always put that on our our quotes and say this this is only good for 30 days. Now, if if you come back three or four months later after that initial quote and say, hey, I'd like to go ahead with this. We say, okay, we'll have to requote. It may be the same price. It may not because our, you know, our trip charges, we just increased our trip charges again. You know, manufacturers, distributors, they all increase their prices. So we have to adjust for that. Now, Jeff, um, you've been in the shop a lot. What about like when a customer calls in and they want pricing on custom work or or things that are sight unseen and they email you pictures maybe but you don't have the actual lock in your hands um and they're wanting a price on that like kind of what well how most, do you most of the that? time we would have them bring it in you know or i can give them a price range you know a lot of stuff is um you know like people send pictures of patio door locks and things like that and like this is the range the, you know they could be between 20 and 120 car keys. I do not, I try not to quote over the phone because there's just so many variables. I have to do. You, do you, does your shop have a uh, set programming fee? Yeah. But that's, that's somebody just calls in. Hi, I need a second key for this car. Nine times out of 10. I want to see that key because I don't, because there's variances. Gotcha. And variables, so weird shit. I could say that the key is $40 and up. I know that if it's a flip key, it's $70. But if it's a push to start, it's $120. And we don't stock those. It, it's easier to have them bring it in. Sometimes it, you still get bit, but for the most part, you know, you're you can't you're not gonna go wrong when you have it in front of you. But we had one the other day where it was an issue with the car. You know, it's um it's just hard to say. So so if somebody calls in and you for a car key for example because i'm i don't do automotive and but i do answer the phones and so people ask me and i'll tell them you know our programming fee is x number of dollars and then i look up the year making model and figure out the part number for the key see if it's in our system if it's not then i try to go based on our distributor pricing all right, so I'm going to say something kind of controversial and say that locksmith pricing on parts is probably the biggest trade secret in locksmithing. So whenever you receive those calls about uh, doing an auto key and it's not something that you have in stock, it's not something that you have a set price on, you have to look up the key from your distributor and then follow your shop's policy and pricing formula to generate the price to the customer. Um, and I think whenever you have to do that, you give the customer a range, as we were saying earlier, so that the customer is expecting a high end, but perhaps you can give a lower end. Yeah, it might drive away some business that is, you know, is scared away by that price. They want the $29.95 special. And obviously, no self-respecting locksmith is going to offer that. But, you know, we need to give that range and be able to do that, you know, Jeff, for 
for things that are, you know, vehicles and custom work and sight unseen stuff. Yeah, agreed. I mean, generally we give a price range. Um, it's easier to see it in person than it is to guess from a picture. Car stuff, like I said, unless it's something super, super common, tell them to bring it in. Period. Not gonna not gonna be held to an exact quote if they can't be bothered to bring it in. Exactly. And so I mean, I guess in closing, the general agreement is don't undersell yourself. You know, charge for what you know, charge for your abilities, charge for your parts. Be honest with it and be upfront with your customers, right, guys? Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, we're not in business to the other day, somebody comes in, need a new key. Well, really, all they needed was a battery. I'm not going to sell them a $125 key when all they needed was a $6 battery. You know, do you, do you, do you charge labor for replacing the battery in their no. key? No, we charge $5.99 period plus tax you're cheap well we make it up in volume as they say oh right in your face <laughs> there you go all righty guys since you've suffered with us this long and let me tell you we have suffered more behind the scenes let's give you all what you really want to hear and find a spare part for this week We all know this is the block of the show you guys really tune in for. Hopefully you didn't fast forward to get here, but if you did, we're not going to blame you. We're trying to find spare parts. Tyler, what do you got? I don't have a spare part. I, I have an apology. I was listening to last week's episode and, uh, well, I've been using AirPods since we started and it sounded like absolute shit in my ears. So I apologize. I did find a better uh, headset this week that I bought based off of Tim's recommendation. So again, just want to apologize. Won't happen again. No apologies necessary because I just used my headset for the first time last week. And my audio is always good. Jeff, your audio is actually pretty good. The camera doesn't work well, but the audio works great. Uh, my spare part is that my coworkers have been on this big panic bar and mullion job all week. So it's been hectic in the shop without having my usual assistance but i'm getting these core jobs done and everything else people are being people have to be patient and tim what do you got all right so everybody in the u.s generally kind of pokes fun at the southeastern states especially north carolina and we gave the entire country one more reason to poke fun at us this past tuesday because a north carolina man from the town of Boone, which is the home of Appalachian State University, uh, led police officers on a chase on a stolen John Deere tractor. Uh, social media posts with video on TikTok went viral, showing the man driving the tractor at up to blazing speeds of 25 to 30 miles per hour through the streets of Boone and Watauga County. The man was eventually <laughs> stopped on the tractor when he veered towards an elementary school that had students in it. The police officers decided to make the brash decision of shooting out one of the tires of the tractor. That brought the tractor to a stop. The man jumped off, though, and was wielding a knife running towards the elementary school. 
He was tased by officers and taken into custody. The man was charged with a felony flee to elude, uh, having a weapon on school property, and DWI, amongst other charges. Hate us because they ain't us. I got nothing. <laughs> That's very southern. We'll That's very Appalachian Mountains, yes. That shit don't happen in Ohio, does it? I don't know, but my roommate from college, they lived in Bluffton. Their, uh, their senior year, they had drive your tractor to school day, so... I've gotten behind tractors that have made me late for work before. Well, another hour of your life has passed you by listening to the three tumblers. Our executive producer is Tyler J. Thomas. Our writer and producer is Handsome Tim Coleman. I'm your technical producer, Jeff Moss. Our tax preparer is Candace B. Rittenoff. Tim's cat nutrition is Ken Opener. Our chief legal counsel is Hugh Lewis Dewey of Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe, known by the locks borders around our dumpster as Huey Louie Dewey. You know, y'all stay out of trouble and have a good internet connection for a happy life. Go Chiefs Bills, because Tyler wants to go to the AFC Championship in Atlanta. I got nothing. This has been a Three Tumblers production, Season 1, Episode 6, Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Find this episode and others wherever you get your podcasts.